you did it again. You've agreed to listen to the podcast. Welcome and thank you for your time. My name is Ian Castleberry. I'm a writer, editor, and podcaster. You can currently find my work at iancastleberry.com, that's C-A-S-S-E-L-B-E-R-R-Y, and through Twitter at Ian Cass. I said on Tuesday's podcast that I wanted to talk about some of the new fall TV, but I think we'll hold off on that until next week, so the shows I want to discuss can be judged on more than just their pilot episodes, which aren't always indicative of how a series will unfold. There's usually too much introduction going on with the cast of characters, the premise, the tone, etc. TV critics usually get at least three episodes to look at before doing a review. I don't think I'll wait that long, but for the shows that stick with me, maybe we'll revisit them later in the season. If you're curious, the network shows that have been on my radar early on are Fox's Prodigal's Son, Emergence and Stumptown on ABC, and Evil on CBS. Of the returning shows, I'm definitely watching The Good Place after binging through the first three seasons late in the summer. I'd like to watch season four of Mr. Robot, but still have to finish off season three, which I should do soon. And a friend has told me that Goliath on Amazon is worth watching, and season three of that series launches this weekend, so I'll try to shoulder my way through that before the end of the year. Between all that, football and the MLB playoffs, that's looking like a full plate. But who knows if I'll stick with some of these new shows or not. That's part of the process. Which new shows are most intriguing to you? Which returning ones are you most excited about? Let me know at thepodcasts at gmail.com or on Twitter and Facebook at the podcast, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-S, and maybe we can get some discussion going on that. Love that TV, man. Who doesn't? But the big reason I'm holding off on TV talk is because Joker comes out in theaters this weekend, and I made sure to catch a Thursday screening so I could review it for Friday's show. There's been a lot of talk about this one. It's one of the most anticipated movies of the fall. From early praise for the movie, which is directed by Todd Phillips, and Joaquin Phoenix's performance. Phoenix is always worth watching in any role. But there's been a lot of social commentary on the violence in the film and the path that Phoenix's character, Arthur Fleck, takes. Leading to some significant backlash before most people have even seen the movie. So let's get into it. Uh, Murray, one small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out... Can you introduce me as Joker? Joker is a really dark movie. You're probably going to say, no shit, Ian. Have you seen the trailers or read anything about it? Yeah, sure, okay. I knew this was going to be a darker, grittier take on the character maybe even more so than what we got with Heath Ledger's version of the Joker in The Dark Knight. I actually haven't read that much about it, because I didn't want any of that stuff to influence my opinion or view of the movie, though it's been virtually impossible to avoid some of the stuff Todd Phillips has been saying about the death of comedy and so forth. And there were times while watching Joker when I wondered if Phillips was trying to say something about that, with the virtual absence of humor in this movie, or the inability of aspiring stand-up comedian Arthur Fleck to be funny. There are some dark comedic elements in the story, but I was expecting more. After all, we're dealing with a character who identifies as a clown, who fancies himself a comedian. Arthur, I have some bad news for you. 
this is the last time we'll be meeting. You don't listen, do you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. Instead, flex laughter is explained by a medical or psychological condition which causes him to break out into laughter or almost another form of crying, often at inappropriate moments. Maybe he eventually has to find the confidence to be funny or what he thinks is funny. The script sort of hints at that. But would that have even occurred to me if I didn't have that Phillips stuff worming around in my head? I kind of doubt it. But what surprised me about the darkness of Joker is that it's bleak to the point of nearly not having a pulse. There's no personality to the film. Fleck and the hellhole, which is late 70s, early 80s Gotham City, begins at such a level of misery that it doesn't feel like there's any place to go, whether you consider that higher or lower. Yes, Fleck's anger, resentment, and psychosis escalate through the course of the movie. That's basically what this movie is about. What causes this man to become arguably the most demented, unhinged villain in fiction, whether it's movies or comic books? Yet when everything is already terrible, how much lower can you go? Sure, people get angrier, more despondent, maybe more impoverished while the 1% seemingly gets wealthier. Though Joker takes place nearly 30 years ago, those sentiments apply to our current culture. But no, people don't all become murderers, and maybe that's the underlying idea. Very few progress to that breaking point. It's not in our nature. It's not in our minds. But those who are truly evil follow that path, or are maybe pushed down that path, by forces and events that everyone else chooses to deal with in a healthier, hopefully more productive manner. For my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed. But I do. starting to notice. For the past 20 years, figuring out what makes villains evil has become an entire creative industry. I don't know if it started with the Star Wars prequels, but that seems to be where it was popularized. How did Anakin Skywalker become Darth Vader? Okay, that question was inherent with the character because we knew that he was Luke Skywalker's father and a Jedi Knight alongside Obi-Wan Kenobi. But was that story really begging to be told? I think we all, whether we mean Star Wars fans or general pop culture, we all thought we wanted to see that story. But would it have been better if Darth Vader stayed ruthless and villainous? Isn't it enough that we knew he had a change of heart by the end and chose to save his son over his devotion to the Empire and the Sith? The mystery of what made Anakin turn into Vader added appeal to the entire Star Wars mythology because it invited people to imagine what might have happened rather than having that story told to them. But that question of what creates a murderous, diabolical villain, is that what compelled Thomas Harris to write an origin story for Hannibal Lecter? Here was another example of a villain being humanized by showing how he was pushed toward evil, how abhorrent behavior informed his own impulses. I don't know how many people saw or read Hannibal Rising, so maybe it's not as good an example as Darth Vader, but somewhere along the line it wasn't enough for evil to simply exist and maybe to develop into something or someone truly despicable. 
Not when there's content to create, stories to tell, and intellectual properties to be squeezed for more, more, more. Did we really need to know what created the Joker? I mean, we can find out why he wears clown makeup or has white skin and a smile scarred into his face as in the comic books. Background elements of the character can be filled in, but how deep do we really need to go to explain him? Isn't that what made the Dark Knight's version of the character, Ledger's performance, building on the interpretation by director Christopher Nolan and writer Jonathan Nolan so special, is that we didn't know his whole story? That Joker even mocked the need to understand him by telling different stories about how he got the scars on his face. The best explanation was no explanation, provided by Michael Caine's Alfred, who said some people simply want to watch the world burn. Some men just want to watch the world burn. That could apply to Joaquin Phoenix's version of the Joker, but what we get here is why he wants to watch the world burn. And I wonder if this movie is attempting to say that it's not his fault, that a culture and bureaucracy that largely turned its back on mental health and those who suffered from mental illness is ultimately culpable for creating the conditions that spawned an evil force like the Joker. I'm sure there are plenty of people who will criticize this movie for its portrayal of mental health and what it can lead to, and that's a discussion worth having. But does humanizing the Joker make a character sympathetic who doesn't necessarily deserve sympathy? Phoenix's performance is spectacular, truly impressive in its physicality. He loses himself in this role to such an extent that you might hope that he's okay, that he eventually recovered and got to a better place after filming completed. Phoenix had to have been exhausted from this, and that kind of effort has to be applauded. To the degree that Arthur Fleck is sympathetic at all is a credit to Phoenix. Had he gotten help, maybe Batman would have had another arch nemesis. The Penguin and the Riddler are surely snapping their fingers with disappointments at missing that opportunity. If not for him, this movie wouldn't be worth watching. By the way, if this occurred to you long ago, I'm the dumbass, but it occurred to me while watching Joker that Arthur Fleck, or A. Fleck, was maybe a Ben Affleck Batman joke? Affleck? Affleck? Can that possibly be a coincidence? Also, as a diehard Batman fan and longtime comic book geek, I have to address my problems with the idea of a prequel that throws an entire mythology into question. For instance, if this Joker goes on to become the legendary villain we know and the eventual greatest adversary for Batman, and there are definitely allusions made to Batman here, which there probably have to be, there's like a 30-year age difference between the characters. Do we want to believe that a 29-year-old Batman was taking on a nearly 60-year-old Joker in their greatest battles? This is a problem I had with the series Gotham, too. I realize this is supposed to be a standalone story and not necessarily connected to anything else in Batman or DC Comics mythology. In fact, I think this movie actively doesn't want to be connected, and that's fine. Just tell a good story about this one character. But that kind of stuff makes my bat ears stand up in annoyance. I'm glad this movie was made, even though I'm not certain it was a story that needed to be told. Comic books and movies based on comic books don't have to be one thing or handcuffed to a certain source material. 
These characters and their worlds are deep enough and rich enough to tell different sorts of stories, including this dark, gritty, Martin Scorsese-esque take on a supervillain. There's room for this interpretation along with Heath Ledger's, Jack Nicholson's, or even Cesar Romero's. The Joker is that great of a character. I'm glad Todd Phillips, writer Scott Silver, and Joaquin Phoenix created this take on him. It doesn't have to be definitive. And it's probably better if it's not. But maybe this could have been a better movie that didn't keep the Joker on a virtually flat path throughout the story and rub the audience's face in the grime over and over and over. Go see this for Joaquin Phoenix and maybe be left lamenting that a better movie wasn't built around that performance. For me, Joker gets three and a half out of five stars. That might provoke Joker into laughter. Let's take a quick break so I can ask you to please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. You might have to search under my name, Ian Castleberry, C-A-S-S-E-L-B-E-R-R-Y, until we get a few more shows in our archive. Also, please leave a rating, or even better, a review if you're so inspired. We can use the signal boost in that big Apple Podcast space. Any feedback you can offer is very much appreciated, and I don't take that time or effort for granted. The podcast is also available for listening, downloads, and subscriptions on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and there's something called Himalaya now? I'll try to get on that if you use it. Oh, and TuneIn. Being on TuneIn means you should be able to listen to this on Amazon Echo, but Alexa can't quite pick up the difference between podcasts and podcast. Yeah, maybe I should have picked a different name. But you can still find us on the TuneIn app and website if that's how you like to listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening and downloading. Okay, from scripted drama to the real-life on-field dramatics of sports, up next are my Wednesday and Thursday appearances on Asheville's Wise Sports Radio. By the way, I'm kind of feeling like Hall & Oates's portable radio should be the permanent music bumper for these segments. I have a few other ones, but portable radio gets me going, man. What do you think if you've been listening to recent episodes of the podcast? Mix it up and don't risk getting sick of Hall & Oates? Like that's even possible. Well, maybe you'll feel differently after this week's hair metal. First up, Wednesday spot. After the Washington Nationals defeated the Milwaukee Brewers in a thrilling National League wildcard playoff game. Then, Pat Ryan and I previewed the rest of the MLB postseason. Ian, good to have you in, bud. And uh, man, uh, what a start to baseball's postseason. And uh, buddy, let's start there because uh, over in Washington, Milwaukee's Trent Grisham mishandles Juan Soto single to right field in the eighth inning, gives the Nationals a comfort behind 4-3 win in the NL wildcard game over the Brewers. And Ian, if that ball doesn't take a weird bounce on Grisham, maybe we're talking about the Brewers playing the Dodgers in the NLDS, but we're not. So what chance you give uh, the Nats against L.A.? You know, I think their their pitching matches up uh, pretty well. Dave Martinez would have been second guessed had the Nationals not won that game. You know, starting Max Scherzer over Steven Strasburg, but now he can uh, the the Nationals can start Patrick Corbin in Game One, come back probably with Strasburg Game Two, Scherzer in Game Three. Yeah, if Trent Grisham hadn't let that ball get by him, it's very possible the Brewers would have held on to win that game. But Josh Hader uh, was not sharp, didn't have his slider last night, couldn't 
throw it for strikes. The, the Nationals hitters uh, were laying off it, uh, so he wasn't looking sharp. It's possible Craig Council might have had to make a change there. But, uh, gosh, for the Brewers, that's just a, a gut punch because they, they did exactly what I, I think almost all of us would have said you have to do. Jump on Max Scherzer early. Scherzer gave up a couple of home runs. They were down 3 nothing. Turn it over to a Nationals bullpen that's far from dependable, but – Davey Martinez did have the luxury of bringing Steven Strasburg out uh, in relief. I, I think maybe he uh, was a little bit handcuffed that he didn't want to bring someone like Strasburg or Corbin in uh, in the middle of the inning. He wanted to make sure they began an inning with nobody on base, uh, a clean inning. So I wonder if that forced him to go with Scherzer uh, a little bit longer than he wanted. But obviously it all worked out in the end. Boy, did it ever. And it was a great win uh, for Washington down 3-1. to one, And that uh, that hit by Soto uh, coming with the bases loaded. Wow. Now tonight in Tampa Bay is at Oakland. So which team do you see moving on to play the Astros in the NLDS? I really like the Rays here uh, starting Charlie Morton. Uh, I think... That gives them a big advantage. Uh, the A's, the, they're going to go with, with Sean Manaya, which was really their only choice. I know there was some talk that maybe Mike, uh, Mike Fears was going to start that game, but, you know, Fears has a 784 ERA in September versus uh, Manaya, who's uh, 4-0 and 1-2-1 since he came back, and presumably fresher, having missed uh, most of the season. But I, I really like uh, Charlie Morton here being able, presumably, to go five, uh, maybe six innings. I think their bullpen could potentially be uh, a little bit stronger uh, with the reinforcements that they're able to add in September. Uh, Oakland has home field advantage here, and that uh, is probably something uh, to to take into consideration. But ultimately, I like the Rays to come out on top here. All right. I meant to say the the AL uh, DS, not the NLDS. Uh, Ian Castleberry with the Wise Guys. Man, we got lots of baseball. It's that time of year. The postseason is upon us. And Ian's uh, Major League Baseball update presented by... By Vistanet Telecommunications. All right. Um, speaking of tonight, uh, whichever team wins, Tampa Bay or Oakland, which team do you think will have the best chance of beating Houston, the, well, uh, the Rays or uh, the A's? Guys, I, I, mean, I think either team uh, is probably just going to be a grist for the Houston Astros. But uh, again, I think uh, the, the the Rays have a better chance. I, I like them with their rotation. Uh, also having uh, Blake Snell, uh, Yanni Chirinos, uh, Charlie Morton when he comes back. Uh, Tyler Glasnow has an outstanding season uh, for the Rays. I think they have a deeper lineup and pitching staff overall and are better equipped for a five-game series against the Astros. But, uh, I, you know, anything could happen in the postseason. But I certainly think either of those teams is just going to be a punching bag for, for the Astros in the ALDF. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, the Astros are looking awfully good. Let's go um, now, if, if we can, into the Yanks hosting the Twins in one ALDS matchup. And, you know, the Twins are the surprise team of 2019 with an uber-impressive 101 wins. Wow. But, uh, Ian, what would they need to do to pull off a series win against the Yankees team that was never really challenged in its division on the way to 103 wins? I think the, the Twins need to flex their muscles. You know, they hit a huge amount of home runs during the regular season, and they need to flex that muscle early on in this ALDS. Uh, you know, take advantage of Yankee Stadium and those smaller dimensions and, and take the ball out of the park. Jump on that starting pitching early, which if, if this Yankees team has one weakness, that's what it is. Uh, you want to, you don't want to hand 
if you're the Twins, uh, you don't want to be down uh, when uh, Aaron Boone goes to that bullpen, that really deep, ideally built for the postseason bullpen that the Yankees uh, have constructed. So if the Yankees, or I'm sorry, if the Twins take early leads and force Aaron Boone to go to, to that bullpen earlier than he would like and extend those relievers, I think uh, the Twins have a chance in that five-game series. Uh, if you don't mind me asking you, you know, with the postseason, you know, all ready to go. Um, oh, you know what I forgot to ask you about first off before we get to that? Um, I forgot. I hope you can just roll with me on this. Uh, the Braves, of yeah. course. Uh, the Braves and the Cardinals. The Braves hosting the Cardinals uh, in the NLDS. A lot of Atlanta fans excited about this team. It's young, but not much postseason experience. So um, how do you think the Braves fare? What are their chances and how far can they go along in the postseason? They clearly have the better team than the Cardinals going into this series. And of course, that doesn't always mean that the better team doesn't always win. Uh, you know, the Cardinals have been overlooked all season long, uh, kind of, kind of a surprise, really, uh, NL Central winner. Uh, we've talked about them before that, you know, they, they don't have any stars in their lineup per se. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt, uh, Marcelo Zuna are star players, but haven't had, uh, you know, superstar caliber seasons. And I think this is a team right now that has a lot of very good players, uh, maybe not a, a star, but the, the Braves, uh, they counteract that with, uh, you know, the star power of Ronald Acuna, Freddie Freeman, Josh Donaldson. If their bullpen uh, can hold up, which has been a weakness for them all season long, uh, I think uh, th- they're clearly the better team here, and, I-, and I-, I give them the advantage over the Cardinals. Yeah, Cardinals looking pretty good coming down the stretch, especially that huge four-game sweep in Chicago that uh, pretty much uh, put the Cubs, not officially at that time, out of the playoffs, but I think mentally uh, out of the postseason. Ian Calsaberry joining the Wise Guys. He does it all for us, uh, baseball today and uh, some NFL coming up tomorrow. But our baseball segment presented by Vistanet Telecommunications. Ian, let's uh, now head to the uh, managerial world. I know we just had you on Monday show, and there was a flurry of moves in in that world. But what are any latest rumors coming down today regarding managerial moves? Well, Joe Girardi kind of uh, stepped up and reminded everybody that uh, he is available and very much wants to manage uh, in the major leagues again. Uh, I think if, if you ask Joe Girardi which job he wants the most, he would say the Cubs. He used to play for the Cubs. He's a Chicago uh, area native. He played his college ball at Northwestern. But the question is, uh, do the Cubs want him? You know, all signs seem to point toward David Ross. Is Joe Girardi Theo Epstein's uh, kind of manager? Uh, that remains to be seen. But you know, there are five openings right now: Cubs, Pirates, Royals, Giants and Padres, oh, I'm sorry, six with the Angels. And there could be four more, uh, you know, do the Mets make a change, Mariners, maybe the Rockies, maybe the Phillies. Uh, Joe Girardi, a, a very good manager. You wonder if uh, the Angels can't get Joe Madden if Joe Girardi is automatically uh, moves to the top of, of that list. Wow. Joe Girardi, man. that would I love that. Joe Girardi just kind of reminding everyone, hey, over here. I'm over here, uh, if needed. All right. Well, let's. Uh, by the way, any other managers who should be concerned for their jobs that maybe have not been let go yet? You know, Mickey Calloway had the strangest season for the Mets. Right. Like, I, I think uh, his decision making uh, leaves some to be desired, especially with handling a bullpen. But I think you could certainly make the argument that the Mets that he kept the Mets in the NL East and the wild card races for far longer than anyone would have expected. But uh, general manager Brody Von Wagner, uh, he didn't hire Mickey Calloway, so maybe he wants to uh, 
to hire his own guy. The Philadelphia Phillies, if they don't have confidence in Gabe Kapler and they want a more veteran presence, you know, like a Joe Madden or, or Joe Girardi, uh, even a, a Buck Schulter, somebody who has more experience in taking a team to that so-called next level, that could be a move uh, that's made as well. Man, uh, wouldn't that? <laughs> I tell you what, we always talk baseball year round because the news just keep coming uh, about this. By the way, you know, you talk about the GM of the Mets and, and Mickey Callaway, and and you look at Callaway's. You look at the end of the day, the Mets. I think had just, were just over five hundred, despite the drama and the craziness uh, that was going on there. And some of that may have been on Mickey Calloway. Some of it, though, I don't think was on. And you could put on Mickey Calloway midseason. We thought he was going to be gone. Credit him, man. He stuck it through. The team stuck it through. They didn't make the postseason, uh, but they didn't suck, uh, which seemed to be the direction they were heading in earlier in the season. Um, Ian, before we let you go, speaking of GMs, any other GMs or any GMs on the hot seat this offseason? I think uh, you have to wonder if Jerry DePoto, if uh, they're in Seattle, he, he overhauled the roster quite a bit. You know, the, the Mariners won 89 games last season, and he went in there and, and tinkered a bunch, and uh, the Mariners uh, were far worse and, and really took a step back. And you, you wonder if he did make too many changes, and, and if, if that puts him uh, on notice. Um, Personally, I would love the Detroit Tigers to put uh, General Manager Al Avila uh, on notice. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, I also wonder if uh, we could see maybe a change in Cincinnati. D- did the Reds take as big a step as uh, ownership may have wanted? There's some general managers that should be on notice that I don't think are going to be. Uh, Pittsburgh Pirates general manager Neil Huntington, I think uh, his job status should be in jeopardy, but it doesn't uh, appear to be. So I think everybody, there aren't uh, too many general managers right now that appear to be sweating uh, their job status. Yeah, of course. <laughs> That's how it works. Hey, man, great stuff as always. And we'll look forward to catching up tomorrow with some NFL headlines. In the meantime, you have a great rest of the day. And thanks for um, your information and your knowledge as always, buddy. Outstanding. Thanks so much, Pat. Talk to you tomorrow. You got it. Thanks, buddy. Ian Castleberry with the Wise Guys, presented by Vistanet Telecommunications. I wish I'd have brought up the controversial hit-by-pitch play with Michael Taylor on the air. The first few times I saw that play, I was convinced Taylor was hit on the hand. But the more I looked, yeah, maybe that ball hit the bat and should have been called a foul ball. Too close to call, maybe, or not conclusive enough evidence needed to overturn a call on the field. I also thought it was great that Ryan Zimmerman, the face of the Nationals franchise during their existence in D.C., came through with a big hit, a broken bat bloop single. It just felt appropriate that Zimmerman was part of the rally that led to the Nats' first victory that advanced them in the playoffs. I love that guy. I've been a big fan of Zimmerman for years and a closet fan of the Nats, having listened to so much D.C. sports talk over the years from Tony Kornheiser and reading great writers in the Washington Post like Tom Boswell, Barry Sferluga, Adam Kilgore, and Chelsea Janes. Oh, and did my American League wildcard pick turn out okay? Charlie Morton, baby. Let's move to football and Week 5 in the NFL. If we praise the Nationals in our baseball segment, Pat and I came to slam the Washington Redskins when we talked football. What a mess that team is. Well, let's get to it. As uh, Ian Castleberry joining the Wise Guys, it is our NFL Gold Nuggets feature presented by David Creaseman and the gang at D.C. Creaseman Jewelers. Ian, uh, good afternoon. Do you mind if we start with a little baseball? 
No, not at all. You, you know a little something about that, so I, I thought we'd get your thoughts on, on the Mets uh, firing Mickey Calloway. The team was 10 games over 500, and quite frankly, Ian, I was impressed uh, with how Calloway got that team turned around after, remember, around May or early June, we were like, what's going on with this guy and this team? And you know what? He turned it around. I, I thought that may have saved his job, but the Mets think otherwise. So what was their thinking? And, uh, boy, what unlucky manager's got to step into that job? Um, you know, we talked a little bit about this on Tuesday, but I think ultimately it comes down to Mickey Calloway was not hired by the general manager, Brody Von Wagner. And I think Von Wagner probably wants his own guy in there. I'm with you. I think Callaway proved his bona fides this season. I mean, he, he might not be the best game manager. I think he's still learning when it comes to bullpen usage and, and some of his strategy. But he had the Mets in the, in the wild card race in the National League, uh, not contending in the NL East. Uh, they were far behind the Braves. But, uh, you know, I think maybe the New York market, the scrutiny of the New York market, the fan base, the media probably got to him a little more. Uh, than it should have, and you wonder if he would do better in a different market uh, with a different team. If I was the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Kansas City Royals, I would get on the phone with Mickey Callaway because I think he's somebody who could uh, handle, you know, uh, leading a young team, uh, mentoring some of those players. He can handle a pitching staff well. Neither of those teams are, are, are expected to contend. Callaway is used to uh, working for an ownership that's not willing to spend money. The Mets probably didn't spend enough money on free agents uh, while he was uh, their manager. Uh, that Maybe there's some thoughts uh, on the Mets side that Callaway isn't the, the guy to take the Mets to that supposed next level if they do indeed believe that's where they are as a team. But I think Callaway showed that he can manage uh, in the major leagues and, and deserves another shot. I agree. I was I was saying that at the top of the show that I think he's done enough uh, to to earn that opportunity because what he did and that team did. When you think about it, you just mentioned the scrutiny of the number one media market, and they're really, quite frankly, uh, the number two team out of two major league teams in that market. Uh, he, the man that team could have folded. He could have just you know shown no leadership whatsoever. And I know you know you mentioned the in game issues, and you know he had some issues with his players as well. He's a fiery guy. He's Irish. His last name is Calloway. Um, so you know, obviously, it could have been. It could have been. It just could have gone south. It didn't. It went north. Ten games over five hundred. Yes, they didn't. Um, you know, get a playoff berth. But it was. I thought a comeback. Yeah, worthy of of a return. So you're saying the Royals and who was the other team you think he would be a good fit for? Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, I think uh, he would be a really good fit for. You know, maybe not uh, one of the contending teams. I you know I don't know if uh, uh, the Angels uh, would be interested in him. Uh, you know, he, the Giants, he might be a good fit there, too, but there's some talk that uh, Raul Obanez is the front runner uh, for that job. Uh, you know, th- there's some big names in front of Mickey Calloway, obviously, uh, with Joe Girardi, uh, Mike, Mike Socha, uh, it's Joe Madden, and uh, some of the openings like the Cubs, uh, like the Giants, as you mentioned, maybe like the Angels, uh, already have uh, guys that they're zeroing in on uh, before. Mickey Calloway uh, became uh, available. Uh, but again, I, I think a, a rebuilding team like the Pirates, like the Royals, like the Giants, uh, Mickey Calloway would be an excellent fit. 
maybe if the Rockies or the Mariners, uh, if those jobs open up, uh, Callaway could be in consideration uh, for those positions as well. Yeah, man. Uh, impressive. We'll, we'll see. Uh, obviously not impressive enough for the Giants, but you get the point. All right. We'll move on to, uh, some NFL because we got some big ones coming up here, including, uh, Giants running back Saquon Barkley in on the practice field yesterday. And he wasn't just watching practice just 10 days after suffering a high ankle sprain that is estimated to put him out for four to eight weeks. Barkley was running and cutting while working with the trainer. Seems like he's far ahead of schedule, Ian. Could Barkley return even before that four-week te- uh, deadline? Yeah, Giants coach Pat Shermer wouldn't uh, rule out Barkley for week five. Probably not uh, going to happen. I mean, he, he is still uh, injured, Saquon Barkley, but I think it's becoming clear uh, w- with how active Barkley was uh, pre-practice uh, in drills that maybe this uh, high ankle sprain isn't quite as severe as initially diagnosed. You know, maybe there's no ligament damage, uh, which is really the the big problem. You know, when, when we hear the words high ankle sprain and immediately think it's a six uh, to eight week injury, maybe this uh, sprain's not as severe uh, as originally feared. But I also wonder if, uh, obviously, if Barkley was injured, he, he wouldn't be playing. But I, I wonder if the fact that the Giants are actually playing pretty well right now. They're 2-2. Two and two. They're tied for second in the NFC East. The Cowboys maybe looked a little bit vulnerable after their loss uh, to, to the Saints uh, last week. And Daniel Jones, uh, their new quarterback, their rookie quarterback, is playing well. He's 2-0. and He's com- uh, completing 69% of his passes, passed for nearly uh, 600 yards. So maybe Saquon Barkley and the Giants feel a little bit better uh, about returning uh, their running back uh, to the lineup and to a team that could uh, suddenly be a playoff contender. Man, it's like Cam Newton, Eli Manning. You know, Eli out for obviously he was pushed out. He was replaced. Cam going out with injury, but the replacements. We, you know, Daniel Jones, obviously the number six overall pick. So there was a lot of anticipation on how he would handle things. He's done extremely well, of course, for the Panthers. Kyle Allen uh, has had um, two wins. Uh, and, and look, I mean, that's the thing, right? In the NFL, man, two wins, especially early in the season, turns things right around. No one's laughing at the Giants anymore. That's reserved for the Redskins, um, but which is a hot mess, by the way. Jay Gruden's like, I don't even know who my quarterback's going to be. It's almost like, you know what, just have, how about the fan base just vote on who we should start at quarterback? Because Dwayne Haskins. <laughs> that would be great. Wouldn't that be fun? Dwayne Haskins showed he's not quite ready for prime time. Not that he won't be. Uh, but there were some folks questioning why he was even in the game. Uh, at that point, and, you know, it's different, man. Back in the, back when I was just a, a wee lad, you know, a lot of those great quarterbacks, man, they didn't just jump right in. They, times it doesn't, it's hit and miss right now. Putting Haskins in early, three game or four games into his rookie year, mm, that looked like a miss for the moment. Ian Castleberry with the Wise Guys presented by DC Creaseman Jewelers. It's our Thursday NFL Gold Nuggets feature. The Raiders' Vontez Perfect, Ian, appealing his suspension, uh, which runs through the rest of the season. That's going to be coming up on Tuesday. Yet another uh, helmet-to-helmet hit, $5 million in fines. That is just a mind-blower. Uh, the good news is, though, he's helping a lot of uh, charities that uh, are helped by the NFL. But after Burfick's uh, appeal is heard, do you think the NFL will pull back on that penalty? I, I don't think so. I, it may not be 12 games. So if you're, if you're by pulling back, if you're saying this could be an eight-game, uh, a 10-game penalty, I, I think that's possible. But the NFL really wants to send a message here, and I think they should. Perfect. This is, I mean, to talk about repeat offender, 
He's been suspended three other times for unnecessary roughness or dangerous hits. He's been fined 11 times, as you mentioned, total $5 million for on-field incidents. He's also been suspended once for PED use. So there's just like a record here of him taking, you know, headshots, shots at other players' groins, trying to injure knees, ankles. He just doesn't care. You see that, you saw that helmet-to-helmet hit. On Jack Doyle, Doyle, the play was over. Doyle was was completely defenseless, and Burfecht just decided he was going to go in there, helmet first, and, and try to hurt the guy. He doesn't seem to care uh, about that. So, you know, the, the NFL uh, PA, the Players Union, they have to defend Burfecht just because he, he's he's part of their their workforce. But uh, it, it, you have to think that the majority of uh, the players actually don't want to see Vontez Burfecht back. But, uh, you know, a union has to defend uh, one of its players like that. I think if there is any wiggle room uh, in getting that suspension reduced, it's that the previous uh, longest NFL suspension for uh, a hit like this was five games. Uh, maybe you'll remember when Albert Hainsworth stomped on uh, right. Andre Garod's head. So this is, you know, more than twice uh, the length of that suspension. But again, we're looking at a repeat offender, just a long career record of dangerous play from Vontez Perfect. And I think that's why the NFL has come in so strongly on this. Yeah, it's funny. The NFL Players Association is supposed to protect their players. But how do you handle that? I talked about it with Shoop on Monday. How do you handle that when one of the players is actually hurting another player? Right. I mean, wow, uh, that's that's going to be a, a bit of a mess to figure out. We'll see where it goes. But I love, you know, David Carr's like, oh, he's heartbroken over this, and he's a changed man. And I was telling Stan the last hour we were talking about this. And it's like a changed man, really. He's five, changed four games, four yeah. games into the season, and he's already been suspended for the rest of the year. So you know, I, I don't want to hear that at this point. He's a dirty player. He's the NFL's dirtiest player. He would have been, you know, this would have worked in the '60s and '70s, um, even into the '80s to a degree. I mean, it was it, football was rough. It's not like that anymore. He maybe needs to hop in the old hot tub time machine and go back into that time because right now that's just not how it goes and how it plays in the NFL. And uh, I think the NFL may come off uh, maybe like two or three games, uh, I think, at the end of the day. Jack Doyle wasn't, you know, he didn't miss any time. He wasn't injured. He did go back into the game. Maybe that's something that would otherwise be taken into consideration. But it's the hit itself, it's the, the repeat behavior uh, that, uh, as you said, uh, the NFL just can't ignore here and hasn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and we'll see again where that one plays out. Again, his uh, appeal is coming up on Tuesday. Uh, Ian, your Lions are off to their best start in recent memory. Two oh one. Well, actually, what they're now two one and one heading into their bye week. But Ian, after years of supreme disappointment, at what point will you start getting excited about this team? I was uh, already. I might already be there. I was really excited about their game against the Chiefs. I mean, I didn't. I didn't think they could win that game. Uh, the Chiefs, uh, maybe one of the best team uh, in the NFL, but playing at home, I thought they would play. Uh, the Lions would play the Chiefs tough, and they did. Uh, Matt Patricia, his defense, uh, it's really coming around. I don't know how good of a head coach he actually is, but his defensive scheming is excellent. Uh, and they, they held Patrick Mahomes uh, without a touchdown pass for the first time uh, in his young NFL career. Uh, the, the offense uh, appears uh, to be coming around. You know, they beat the Eagles and they beat the Chargers uh, without playing at their best. Uh, their effort against the Chiefs was their best effort uh, 
uh, of the season. So going into a bye week, you know, they, they have some uh, key injuries. You know, Matt Stafford's dealing with a hip issue. Darius Slay, their best uh, defensive player, uh, cornerback, missed uh, the game against the Chiefs. Maybe that would have made a difference uh, in that game. But if they beat the Packers at Lambeau Field uh, on Monday Night Football in Week 6, uh, I think uh, I and uh, my other fellow Detroit Lions fans can officially get excited. Oh man! <laughs> well, don't get too don't get too you know what I mean? don't get too excited now. Don't let that team let you down uh, at the end. But you're right. You bring out two great well, the, the great team they beat was Kansas City, a very good Philadelphia team they beat on the road. Uh, we should point out as well. So yeah, man, there's reason for excitement in Detroit. But as always, man, it's kind of like one eye open. When it comes to, to that, uh, Ian disgruntled Jacksonville cornerback Jalen Ramsey still wanting to be traded. Meanwhile, uh, Jags owner Shad Khan has waited on this and he's, you know, kind of a big voice on Ramsey's situation. So, uh, <laughs> w- w- what has he said about Ramsey's status? Uh, Jaguars owner Shad Khan insists he is not going to trade Jalen Ramsey. And, and I guess you can see where he's coming from. You know, that they are unquestionably a better team with Jalen Ramsey, uh, one of the best uh, cornerbacks. In the NFL, the Jags are two and two, you know, uh, supposedly, uh, in the playoff mix, uh, with that record and, uh, the magic of Gardner Minshew the second, uh, at quarterback. I think also, uh, they, the Jaguars did receive a trade offer. Uh, the team is unknown, but reportedly it was from a playoff contender who offered two first round picks. Now, since this is a contending team, those first round picks would be lower in the first round, and maybe that's why Shad Khan and the Jaguars front office isn't as gung-ho about making a deal like this uh, uh, as they normally would be. But, uh, you know, we've talked about this, uh, I think, every week of this season so far. Ramsey, it's just a huge distraction. Is he going to show up to practice? What excuse is he going to come up with this week? Uh, You know, his baby being born, his back hurts, his neck hurts, his knee hurts. Uh, he, he wants to be traded. I, I just, I feel like it's a distraction that the, the, the Jaguars just can't, uh, afford to deal with. Uh, you know, they need him on the field. That was, uh, you know, a, a difference in the game against, you know, they did beat Denver on the road last week, but Joe Flacco had a better game than he probably would have had Jalen Ramsey been in the lineup. But if other teams are offering two first round picks, and you have a chance to get rid of that distraction. Uh, I think the Jaguars have to do it. That's a no-brainer if it's two first-round picks uh, for sure. Um, because, man, we've seen when he gets pissed. <laughs> Holy cow, clear the sidelines. Uh, Ian, what other uh, Week 5 storylines are you following this week? Well, you mentioned Jay Gruden, but I, I, just to, to follow up on that a bit, you know, sure. they have the Patriots this week, so uh, it doesn't appear that uh, the Redskins are going to get their first win of the season. Uh, so, you know, will Jay Gruden be fired at 0-5, uh, or will they wait until their bye week? Who are they going to start at quarterback? You mentioned it could be Dwayne Haskins, but do they really want to throw him to the wolves uh, against the Patriots? Uh, Case Keenum, you've probably lost him now after benching him. Could it be Colt McCoy? That could be crazy. It's just a hot mess uh, uh, in D.C., I think that's definitely something to keep an eye on. But I think maybe the number one storyline to watch uh, in Week 5, Bears and Raiders in London, the Khalil Mack revenge game. Uh, this is Khalil Mack's first game uh, against the Raiders and John Gruden since he was traded last year to the Bears. Is he going to have a monster game? Uh, you know, Khalil Mack, he has 17 sacks uh, for the Bears since he uh, joined that team. The Raiders during that same time period have 18 sacks total. 
as a team. So this this could go down as maybe the worst trade uh, in NFL history. And also for the Bears, you know, who is the best team in the NFC? Uh, it, it doesn't look like the Cowboys anymore. Uh, tonight's game, the Rams and Seahawks may go some way toward uh, determining that. The Saints without Drew Brees. Uh, the Bears, uh, maybe they're better with Chase Daniel at quarterback uh, instead of Mitchell Trubisky. Uh, if, if the Bears win that game, they're 4-1. and one. Maybe they're the best team in the NFC. Oh man, what is it? The year of the backup quarterback in the NFL. Uh, they're definitely stepping really, up yeah, yeah. big time. Uh, we're playing with Ian Castleberry. It's our NFL Gold Nuggets feature for this Thursday presented by DC Creaseman Jewelers getting ready to celebrate 40 years serving our community next month. Good matchup on Thursday night football. You mentioned the Rams and the Seahawks tonight. Uh, a great uh, NFC West showdown. Which team is your pick to win tonight, Ian? Rams coming off that 55 to 40 loss yeah. to Tampa Bay. Ugly. They look terrible. Yeah. I mean, they have a three and one record, but Jared Goff, uh, he, he's second in the NFC in passing yards, but that's because the Rams have had to come from behind, uh, so often and they can't run the ball. Six interceptions already, four lost fumbles, uh, going up against this, uh, a tough Seahawks defense. Uh, the game is in Seattle. Seattle has had uh, their struggles uh, on defense as well, but uh, I, I like the Seahawks uh, in this game at home against a struggling Rams team. Man, you know, the Seahawks, it's interesting because it, it seemed like they were down just a little bit, and, and now it's like they're, they're going to be a challenging the Rams for the division title. I, you, know, you just figure, you know, the Rams, there's not many changes they made that would make us think, yeah, they're going to let go of this division. And, and now you're, I mean, it's just one game, and I think sometimes, and, and I'm guilty of it as well, for sure. You know, we tend to overreact, and but, man, they look really bad against a mediocre Tampa Bay team. And I'm right when I say mediocre, they're 2-2. Two and two. Uh, And some people are surprised that they're 2-2 two and two at this point so this is going to be a big game for for nfl fans to watch the rams after a short week from being you know after four days after being blown out how they respond tonight up in seattle uh that's going to be an electric atmosphere finally in a really good matchup on thursday night football Whew, man absolutely yeah that, that game's been a dog uh, for, for for many many weeks uh, so to have a really uh important matchup and i think you know you have to look uh, at road teams in that thursday night game on a short week, as you mentioned, uh, not uh, just it doesn't. Uh, all of the uh, numbers do not work in the Rams' favor here. No, <laughs> for sure. Uh, only the only number they need to worry about is the one on the scoreboard at the end of the game. We'll be watching it tonight. Always appreciate you, my friend, and uh, have a great rest of the week. We'll look forward to catching up with you Monday and uh, getting into more baseball playoff headlines. All right, fantastic. Thanks so much, Pat. Have a good weekend. You too, buddy. Always appreciate you. Great work, as always. Ian Castleberry with the Wise Guys. And our NFL Gold Nuggets feature with Ian presented by D.C. Creaseman Jewelers. And that's the podcast. I mentioned our social accounts earlier in the show, but we're also on Instagram at the podcasts, or you can find me personally at Ian Cass. That's I-A-N-C-A-S-S. I'd love to get any feedback, good or bad, but hopefully good. Thanks again for listening. How is it October already? And how is it 90 degrees in Western North Carolina when leaves are supposed to be changing color and falling while pumpkin spice again takes over the culture? Such questions may be pondered on future podcasts. Until then, enjoy an apple. They're good for you. Roughage and all. Although maybe a bit too much sugar.